God speaks. Hello? Okay, sorry. God speaks to us in his word in Acts 2, 36 through 47. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for your forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning. Good to see you guys. Thanks for braving the um, completely predictable weather in Oklahoma. Every 10, 15 minutes, man, there's a, we don't know what's going to happen. It changes all the time. And uh, so thanks for getting out in the weather. Zach, I trust you'll let us know if there's like a, some sort of vortex or something happening somewhere. You need to let, man, Zach Merrill is like the best weather man just uh, I've ever met in my life. He's got some sort of prophetic gifting with weather, so He'll give you his cell phone number if you want to keep you updated after this. So with JK. All right. Acts chapter two. Uh, we just finished up Jude and we preach through books of the Bible here. Um, and, um, and every once in a while, if we feel like the Lord is leading us to something that's more specific, uh, we'll kind of take a break from that, but we'll always come back to it. For instance, this summer, we're going to start um, a series on uh, habits of formation, Okay, rhythms of grace. Another word that you might, um, another term that you might have heard is spiritual disciplines. Well, we decided we don't really like that word, and so that's what it is, but we're gonna call it habits or rhythms. And really, that's what it, they are. They're, they're rhythms, they're habits that put us directly in the seat of the grace of God. So some of us sometimes we feel like, man, I don't know why I'm so stale right now. I don't know why I'm so dried up. I don't know why God feels so distant. Well, there, you have a job in the fight. You have a job. And that is to put yourself in position uh, to receive the word, receive the presence of God. I have a friend who says, if you want to catch a train, you got to go to the train station. You can't catch a train on your front porch. which Nobody catches trains anymore, but you know what I'm saying. Catch the bus. Anyway, catch something. you got to go to that place where that's at. We stack kindling. That's what we do. And then we, uh, we, God brings the fire, but our job is to stack the wood. 
And that's what habits of grace, grace, rhythms of grace, habits of formation is. And so we're actually going to start that next week. My good friend Matthew Arbo, uh, who is a former professor at OBU, uh, but one of our elders uh, downtown Frontline, he's going to be here to kind of kick off that sermon series. So we've got invite cards. We'd love to invite you to invite your friends um, so that we can all, throughout the summer, we can grow deeper and become just better disciples of Jesus. We need that series. We finished Jude last week. Jude was amazing four weeks. Today is what we call a standalone sermon. And I just felt like that for our church, we've been talking a lot this summer about building true church, building family, building relationships. Now, if you're a guest in the room, I want to acknowledge something that is a reality for you. you to walk in here and to feel like everybody knows each other and the guy on stage is talking about family um, it can get real weird for you. So I just want you to know you are welcome here. However, our job as a church is to build family. And it doesn't take long for you to become a part of that family. So that's what we want to talk about today. I want to look at Acts 2 today to see what is true church. Now, if I were to take a poll in this room, and if I were to ask you, what is church? There's a theological term for the study of the church, the theology of the church, and that is the word ecclesiology. Everybody has an ecclesiology. Everybody has a theology of the church. And maybe you're not used to the church. Maybe you just grew up in Oklahoma or the Bible Belt or whatever, and you kind of know what church is or think you do. Well, whatever you think the church is, that is your ecclesiology. That's your theology. There's lots in the room that have been to church a thousand times, maybe even covenant members in the church. You know the language, you know the songs, you know the preacher's gonna preach. You walked in, you were like, okay, I got it, juice, bread, you know, I guess we're gonna be taking communion today. That's your ecclesiology, what you understand about the church. But a lot of us build our theology of the church on our culture. And what we need more than anything today is to build our theology of church on the one who built the church, Jesus, who is actually still the head of the body and what he says the church is. And I think going into the summer, it'd be helpful, I hope it'd be helpful for us today to look at Acts 2 and just go, what is true church versus not true church? What's just true ecclesiology versus just our cultural idea of what the church should be? When I was growing up, I... Uh, a lot of you guys know this, I talk about it a lot, I used to play baseball a lot. And, um, and man, I remember this one game. It was like, it was playoffs, and it would send us on to the state regional round. And I was pitching, it was like two to one. We had runners on first and third, for you baseball people that know. The best hitter in my age group in the state comes up to bat, I'm pitching. Runners on first and third, it's the bottom half of the seventh inning, which is the last half of the game. And I, uh, so I, I stand up to pitch to him, throw a couple pitches. It's like two strikes. It's close to where I can, you know, there's two balls, two strikes, close to where I can uh, maybe get him out. Everybody's screaming in the stands. You know, it's so tense. Everybody knows that this is the one. If he hits the ball, we're going to at least be tied and probably lose. Runner moves over from first to second. Anyway, we've got... It's a bad situation for me. I throw this great pitch. I'm telling you, it was amazing. It's probably the best pitch that's ever been thrown in the history of baseball. That guy tees off so hard on that pitch. And I look at it, and I'm like, 
man, this is straight out of a movie. I mean, for miles this thing went and just barely started to hook foul. And it hooked foul. And I remember doing this on the, my buddy, my best buddy was in center field and he goes, oh, I watched him go, oh my gosh. And I, we all did the same thing and it went foul and I just did one of these, Lord Jesus. If it's in your will, if there's any way, Lord, you can just not let that ever happen again. In Jesus' name, amen. And I stood up and threw another pitch. He struck out. We won the game. Everybody goes nuts. There were people in the crowd that wanted to go have dinner with my family and me. Of course, we went to Waffle House, like you do. Uh, we, everybody was just ready to just, you know, like, who's this pitcher? Who's this guy? Had a bunch of fans all of a sudden. That's the last time in my life I ever had any fans. And I remember thinking, that's right, it's about time I had some fans. Well, it wasn't long after that that I threw a horrible game. And we got beat out of the playoffs because of my pitching. And I remember thinking that, uh, this was years later, I remember thinking about my mom and how my mom bought my dinner at Waffle House that night and all my friends. And you know who else bought my dinner the night that I lost? My mom. She also provided dinner for me. She didn't care. What was happening, she didn't care if I pitched a good game or not. I was her son. She was my mom. We were family. I'm telling you that to say this. It is possible to, in the church, be more fans than family. It's possible to be more crowd than church. Family cooks the meal. Family sits down together. Family is there no matter how well you perform or not. Family is there to brave even the worst parts of our life. That's what church is. We will always, in this church, we will always have some kind of a crowd. You are welcome here. We want crowd. We want people to come and see, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to hear the gospel. That's what we want. But the core of our church, which is mainly represented here today, is always going to be true church, true family. That means we do certain things. That means we act certain ways to each other. I think Acts 2 gives us a real example of what it means to be true church. Let me give you a little bit of background before we jump in. Peter stands up, he preaches the gospel. This is the same Peter that we learned in Mark, when we preached through Mark, that had denied Jesus and counted himself not a follower of Jesus. As a matter of fact, Acts 2 says that Peter stood with the 11. What does that let me know? That lets me know he's still. It's still iffy whether or not he's actually in. Still considered himself out. Luke is writing Acts now, the account of Peter. Peter stands with the 11. This is the Peter that cast his sword like a fishing rod. And he chopped the ear off of the guy in the garden. This is the Peter that basically got rebuked by Jesus when Jesus called him. Satan said, get behind me. This is the Peter that was just goofy. He walked on water. Without enough faith, he nearby drowns. Jesus comes to say, this is that Peter that denied Jesus three times after Jesus warned him about it. That Peter, who did not believe, stands up and preaches the gospel that started the church. Peter, the Bible says, full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Spirit. It is amazing what God does in people. We need more of the Holy Spirit. God takes people who stumble, who deny, who fall in the water, the Holy Spirit comes on them and all of a sudden it's a new and different thing for them. We need more of that. Notice what I didn't say. 
I didn't say that Peter stood by himself. I didn't say that Peter decided by himself. Peter did something that's remarkable that we need to do, full of the Holy Spirit with his brothers around them. We need God the Holy Spirit. We need God in community. We need each other. Full of the Holy Spirit. He stands up and he preaches the gospel. Today I want to learn about marks of the true church and where it starts is this. It starts and finishes with a true gospel. Everything starts and ends with the gospel. Acts 2, 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This is Peter preaching. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I love this. There's a reason why we talk about the gospel so much here. It's not just a buzzword. It's the glue for everything. There's no true church or true repentance without first a belief in the gospel of Jesus and consistently coming back to it because we so soon and so often forget. And it includes a few things pointed out here. One, the gospel, believing that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. Not just one or the other. Jude helped us with that. Jude stands up and says, not I'm a brother of Jesus, which he was. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus. And that's the point. He's not just Savior. He's also Master. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. The saving one, Christ, and also Lord. Second thing is this. Understanding that we deserve his punishment. This is the gospel. This Jesus whom you crucified, Peter says. Knowing that he himself crucified Jesus as well. Third thing, hearing with our heart and not just our head. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. This is something that we need more and more today. We love to learn things, but we don't often love to learn things. We need to understand and believe, not just with our mind, to believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And then finally, taking action. Believing the gospel is believing that Jesus is both Lord and Master. It's being cut to the heart, but it's also taking action. And then they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They heard it. It moved them, it cut their heart, and then they immediately go, we have to do something. What do you, what, tell us what to do. The Bible says that faith without works is dead faith. It's not real faith. James is going to point out that you show me your faith, I'll show you my works which prove my faith. We cannot work for God's goodness, we actually cannot work to have faith. Faith comes from God. It's that old Dallas Willard uh, quote that grace um, is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. We have work to do. Faith without works is dead. Brothers, what shall we do, they said. Action of a follower of Christ is then this. And Peter said to them, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, the, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Faith, belief, in awe of God, and then immediately, he says, repent and be baptized. The Holy Spirit is a gift to them. The gospel is for everyone, he says. And the church are a people set apart. That phrase, if I were to ask you, how would you describe our current generation? That means just everything going on in the world today, not necessarily an age, but just this generation of the world. To describe it as a crooked generation feels pretty fitting. Well, this is Peter describing his generation. We hear so much about how things are worse now than they've ever been, and it's never been this crazy, and I've got news for you. It's literally always been crazy. It's always been, it is crazy right now, but it has always been crazy. Peter, 2,000 years ago, stands up and says, save yourself from this crooked generation. He's telling them, there's one way to get out of this rat race, this perpetual tail chase. There's one way, it's through salvation. And therefore, the church needs to be set apart. In, but not of. Listen to what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we all of a sudden, we build some sort of complex and we just only do stuff in the church building. We try really hard to not do a lot in this church building because we want it done in homes. That's the gospel, that's the model of the New Testament church. And it actually works. We talk about community groups, we talk about neighborhoods, we try to do stuff within our neighbors, we're not always great at it, but that's what we try to do. Save yourself from this crooked generation means to be in, but not of the world around you. It's salt and light, it's the Christian, it's the person that follows Jesus, adding flavor to a tasteless world, salt and light of the gospel. Repent, be baptized, the Holy Spirit is a gift. The gospel is for everyone, the church are a people set apart. Now is the start of the church of Jesus. Peter preaches the gospel, people are saved, they're cut to the heart, not just the head. The gospel has changed their entire life now, but because it's changed their eternity. Total change of mind, heart, and life. What's happening now and what's gonna happen in this church is the result of God moving in a group of people. The result of God revealing himself in a group of people. They'll never be the same and everything that they've cherished from this moment, all their stresses, all of their agendas, all their money, all of their stuff, all of their identity, all of it becomes undone. The gospel does that. It does that. When you believe it, it changes everything. None of it matters in comparison to what they've learned. There's a word for this that is often overused. It's a word called awe. I use it a lot. I say things are filled with awe, which is the word awesome, and I'm not trying to get on you for saying it, say the word. Filled with awe. That's what happened to these people. The Bible translates it, 
as fear. They had a healthy fear. They'd heard that they cannot save themselves, but there is a means by which they can be saved, and it's a better deal than you can ever imagine. Filled with fear, I recognize myself. I recognize my need for a Savior. I'm afraid. I'm scared. But then the reality of God Almighty coming and pouring himself out on the cross for you gives me a healthy fear. I'm in awe of who God is and what he's done. They were filled with awe. They now have a sense of something other, something out there, something that has so changed their perspective that now everything else needs to change. Nothing matters outside of this. I thought I knew God. I thought I knew life. I thought I had my life kind of figured out. I thought this is what they would be thinking. I thought I had it, man. I, I really did. But then somebody told me something. I read something. Something happened that made me realize not only do I not have it and I'm afraid of the fact that I don't got it figured out, but that there's also a God who comes alongside me and does the work for me. That's two realities that mold into one. That is believing the gospel. All came on to them. This changes everything. This changes everything. For them it did, for us it should. It changes the way I view every part of my life. It changes the way I view the person I'm sitting next to or the person that I live with. It changes how I treat my employer or my employees. It changes, what I, it changes whether or not I even pray. It changes what I pray for. When we get a right glimpse, just, just a little taste of the reality of God's goodness in his action toward us on the cross, it changes me. It changes me. Now, all of a sudden, I don't care much about my rights. Now, all of a sudden, I don't care much about my self-absorption or what I've got or what I need to get or what I need to keep. Now, all of a sudden, I care about what other people don't have. That's the gospel. It changes me. It changed them, my house, my paycheck, my all that, man. That don't belong to me no more. That's like not mine. Anything I get comes from God anyway. The way I spend my time, the way I prioritize my life, changed, done. It's a done deal. Rewrite it. Start over. Everything pales in comparison to knowing Jesus. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul. Well, how does that happen? And how did these people who would have said they followed God, how then? How can now all of a sudden awe come upon every soul? And no, the word here is not just the soul of those who heard. It's the soul of all the people around, every soul. People who didn't even hear the gospel, didn't even believe in Jesus, there was awe about the land. Something was happening with these people. They're giving away their stuff. They're loving each other. This is crazy. Here's how it happened. 2, verse 42. After they've heard the gospel, repent, and were baptized, now their response is this. 
they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. They devoted themselves. I'm glad we're preaching this today on the heels of starting next week with our habits of formation, our rhythms of grace, because they did something that we need to do. They devoted themselves. Devoted means this, single-minded and steadfast fidelity. When you got married, those of you who are married, you devoted yourself, single-minded. This is my woman. This is my man. There ain't gonna be no more. This is it. Single-minded, steadfast fidelity to a person. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Were they pulled away from these things? You bet. Were there times when they grew tired and didn't do it right? Of course. Were there days they didn't want to do it? No doubt. There's no doubt about that. But they set their mind to come back to continually these four things, and they were steady and faithful to it. Here are the four. Teaching. Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. They devoted themselves to teaching, to letting God the Holy Spirit teach them privately through this word, but also not forsaking the gathering of believers to be sit under the preaching of the word. Second, fellowship. Fellowship. This is what we call gospel community. There's a reason why we call it gospel community. Because just community is nothing but just hangout. We don't wanna do that here. We wanna have true community, and that is gospel community. That's people that edify each other and talk about the word of God and actually have friends that are more than just Facebook friends. Real friends that know your life and you know theirs. And they're able to pray for you and ask you, how are you doing with following Jesus? That's friendship. Fellowship, gospel community. The breaking of bread they devoted themselves to. There are two types of this. One is the table. It's communion. They devoted themselves to it. We have devoted ourselves to it as well. We take it every single Sunday here. We need the remembrance. We need the help of God. We need the grace that's in this sacrament. We wanna devote ourselves to the table, but also <coughs> two types of breaking bread. The table, Eucharist, communion, but then also meals together, opening their home, sharing their life, saying, come over, please. I want to make a point here that just note that Luke and Acts did not say as long as they were comfortable with it, so long as they had the right personality type. No, they devoted themselves to breaking bread together. They devoted themselves to fellowship. I'm not so sure at this point with the awe that had come on them, I'm not so sure they were even much concerned about themselves and we're about to actually learn that for sure. The table and meals together, breaking bread, both are sacred. Your house is sacred, what you cook is sacred, your friendships are sacred, meals in your home is sacred. They devoted themselves to prayer. Prayer is also feasting. Prayer is essential. It's top priority for us. 
it's often the last thing we do in a moment of desperation. Philippians 4 tells us, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. How many are lacking peace? How many? We're so anxious. Let your request be made known to God, and then this happens, and the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. They devoted, they set their mind on teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer, and then right after that comes verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Fear, healthy fear came upon them. One of the things that gave the first church such urgency was their belief. They had this belief that God was actually, the end of the world was coming. They really did. They really thought that this is it. Jesus done died and resurrected. We, it's about to be done. It's about to be a wrap. Of course, we know that that didn't happen. They misinterpreted Jesus on a couple things there. They thought they were staring down the barrel of a quick eternity, which they were, but not because it was coming to an end quickly. It was because life was short. And what happened was the urgency that they felt actually gave them a gospel urgency. It wasn't anxiety, but it helped them to see eternity. So then they lived their life with eternity in mind, with eternity as their perspective. I feel like a lot of us today are missing our sense of awe because we forgot about life after death. You forgot that this world and what you're surrounded with right now is not the ultimate thing. When you live with an eternal perspective, when you live with that, that changes the way you operate now. It's really easy when you're young. Man, all you care about is just whatever the next thing is, what we're gonna eat, well, sometimes all of us care about what we're gonna eat today, I guess. That's all we care about is just what's here and now. You don't even think about time, your schedule, nothing, man. It's like, everything's my parents' fault. <laughs> if I don't make it on time, that's their fault. If I don't go to the doctor, that's their fault. The younger we are, the less we care about what comes next. Some of that's right and good, but for us as adults, we miss our eternal perspective. Having eternal perspective changes the way that we function right now. When our life is so committed to living our best possible life here and now, we sacrifice dang near everything for comfort. When all we care about is what am I gonna get, how is it gonna affect me right now, the thing that rules our life is comfort. We need eternal perspective. So what happens when we have healthy fear? What happens when we have awe? What happens when we have eternal perspective? This is what happens. What happened in Acts 2 was true church, true religion, gospel community. This is what we want to be. And all who believed were together. And they had all things in common. 
And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This sounds like heaven. No need would go unmet. Everything that I have, you have in the temple every day, praising God. And guess what? They did it with glad and generous hearts. What I'm trying to get you to see today is this. The base foundation for this kingdom of God on earth. That's what the church is, by the way, is the kingdom of God at hand in the world. The base foundation is this. It's something that you and I have lost. It is a healthy fear. It's awe of God. It's remembering how crazy the gospel is. It is crazy. You were dead in your trespasses. God made you alive. Awe came upon every soul. They devoted themselves. They said, I will do this. I won't do this. I will do it. And they stuck with it to teaching, to each other, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, to prayer, devotion to it. What came out of that was awe for God. And then finally, no need going unmet among them. I'm telling you, This is who we need to be. This side of heaven, we will never get there fully. But we need more of the fear of God, the awe of God in our life. The reality is this. The gospel is just way too familiar to most people in this room. We preach it all the time. It doesn't cut to the heart. I want to ask you to devote yourself to those four things. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And let's let God do his work of awe in us as a church. One of my favorite quotes is from A.W. Tozer. How do we get there? How do we restore the awe and wonder and fear in our life? The first step is this. I love this prayer. It's going to help us today. Oh, God, I have tasted thy goodness. And it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I am ashamed at my lack of desire. Anybody say amen to that? Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, that so I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you feel in a misty lowland today? Have you said, I've tasted your goodness, it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully aware of my need of grace. 
I am ashamed at my lack of desire. I want to want you, God. I desire to desire you. Come and change my desires. That's where it starts. Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. So if you have little faith, if you have no faith today, the best thing you can do is to come to Jesus and tell him, stir up my affection for you, God. Stir up my heart again for you. I remember what it was like to be with you. I remember what it was like to feel your presence, to have your nearness. I remember, and we don't always have to feel it. doesn't mean he's not there, but we just remember what it was like to be devoted to teaching and to each other and to prayer. We remember, and man, we have forgotten, but I want it again, or more than that, I want to want it again. Sometimes I just want what I want. But I know that God satisfies me. Why do I think that I satisfy myself? Why do I forget that my spouse does? I think that my spouse or my friends or my whatever, my paycheck, that's what satisfies me. It just doesn't take long to realize it doesn't. Maybe that's you today. Maybe that's all of us today. I want to want you. Pick me up from this misty lowland, Lord. Give me awe again. Set my feet on a high place again. We need Jesus. We need him to do that. The table which we're about to take together is a means of grace. It's how we get grace. So today, whether you're down, whether you're in the pit of despair, whatever it is, maybe you hadn't thought about God in a while, maybe you just forgot about him. Maybe you once knew him, but you're asking now, God, return me to my first love. Maybe that's you today. I'm going to ask you, if you're a Christian in the room, if you have given your life to Jesus and you follow Jesus, it's not wrong for you to doubt. It's not. That's part of human nature. It's not wrong for you to be away. What is and what would be is if you hear the voice of God today and they don't come and say, Lord, fill me up again. I want to urge you to do that. We need this reminder. We need the word of God to say, stay the course, press on, come to Jesus when you lack faith and desire. So everybody lacking faith and desire today for the Lord, come to the table, ask that he give it to you. So let's stand together.